Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, and our text today will begin at verse 20 of chapter 22 and then extend into the end of chapter 23. And as you turn there, I just want to rejoice in being able to sing that song with you. I'm glad that I am not on this journey by myself. We are on this together. And it is especially helpful to be able to engage in this journey and battle with those of you who also love the Word of God in the way that you do. That is the the highest compliment that I could pay to this church. You love the Scriptures, even the hard ones, just like the text today. You'll see. (laughs) Genesis 22, 20, I'll begin reading there all the way to the end of chapter 23. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, and the sites of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, 
Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place to the Hittites. The United States Census Bureau has reported some interesting facts for us in recent days. Just probably last week, I had heard on the radio that the average person in the United States will move some 11.7 times in their lifetime. 11.7 times. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely hate moving. Hate it. And the fact that we would subject ourselves to this kind of torture almost 12 times in our life makes me wonder, we must be really unsettled. (laughs) It's not just that people were moving generally, but what's also of interest or should be to you as residents of this fine state. It seems a lot of them are moving here. In fact, more people are moving to the state of Florida than any other state in the country right now. It's somewhere close to, and I won't give the exact numbers, but 132,000 people moved into our state last year. Now, for what it's worth, 62,000 of them came from one state. Do you know where it was? New York. So you New Yorkers, I'm finally getting it now. Like, What was it? Why did they want to come? Well, the reason was taxes. Because of the tax breaks that come here, people want to live in this state. But the truth is, like, most of you that I actually know in this congregation this morning aren't really from here. I want to prove this. Raise your hand if you live here currently. You live here currently. All right, now, keep your hands up if, keep your hands up if you're from here, you were born here. All right. Yeah, exactly what I thought. You can put your hands down. That's probably maybe 15 people in the congregation this morning. (laughs) The rest of us are from somewhere else. But we decided to live here, and maybe we had a good reason for doing so. I assume so. But what are the reasons why anyone would move? Why would we settle at one place over another? It'd be a fascinating study, one that would exceed the bounds of the time that we have. But the truth is, we're by nature restless. We're always looking for home, a better home, an improved home. Maybe you've already moved here and you're thinking about, well, now that I'm here in Naples, I could move somewhere else. It's hard to get settled. And I think the reason why, at least spiritually speaking, is because we're looking in all the wrong places. We make our our decisions based on all the wrong things. We live in a world that is fraught with death and disease and disappointment. And no change of zip code will ever fix that. So the question should be for the the well-intended believer this morning. Is on what basis then does the believer find a home? What should we be looking for? as people living the life of faith, to truly feel at home. You'd be surprised to realize that this is actually what this particular text is all about. You've seen it happening throughout the life of Abraham. As it begins to wind down to a close, we're starting to see aspects of fulfillment. 
And there's a couple parts of this promise that God made to Abraham from the very beginning that still need to come true. The main two are a progeny and a place, or genealogical promises and geographical promises. There was supposed to be a multitude who would come from Abraham that would eventually bring blessing upon the entire world. And we've seen that theme woven throughout the text. And even as soon as last week, we see that even though God would originally require Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, he would provide for him and then bless him even further. But the the text doesn't just talk about the progeny or the genealogy, it is also intent on letting us know that Abraham was promised a place. He was promised a land. But as we followed Abraham these 62 years, and it has been that long, he still doesn't have a land to call his own. And so the text will also give us not only hints of the people fulfillment or the genealogical fulfillment, but also the geographical The first expression that we saw of this was actually a few weeks ago when we saw the giving of this well at Beersheba. Just a small little taste that Abraham could own something in this promised land. But here the promise grows. And we see not just a possession, a well, but we see a place. Abraham is determined to find a place. But the question will be for us, where will this place be? Will it be in the land of promise, or will it be in the place that he would feel most at home? We'll follow the story in in three basic movements. The first is in verses 22-20 to 23-2. And it's really the temptation for the old home. The temptation for the old home is what I'll call it. Now, I think you'll see why. Look again at verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold... Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And notice this little parenthesis, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Now pause here for a moment. It would be easy to wonder, like, what is this doing in the text? I think we could have gone very well from the end of the offering of Isaac right on to the, the, the death of Sarah. It seems extremely insignificant that God would place this here. But you need to be thinking about the way the ancient Near Eastern reader would have been thinking about the text. Because as he just finishes this section on the offering of Isaac, there would be this really clear memory of the closing promise. Now again, we need to read this the way they did. We typically read the story of the offering of Isaac, and we merely think of, oh, God provided a ram, story's over. But remember... Did the story actually end there? No. Uh, There was much inspired ink spilt on the, the promise of this future genealogy. So there's this promise that God is going to create a great nation through Abraham. Not just give him a son, but give him a son who would have sons who would have more sons. So the fact that Isaac is preserved doesn't really solve anything now Ancient Near Eastern thought, Isaac has to get married, and now Isaac needs to have children. And this is a problem for Abraham. Now, you as a modern Westerner would think, that's not Abraham's problem, that's Isaac's problem. He needs to be his own man. He needs to find somebody by himself. 
But that's not the way the Hebrew mind worked. When they would read this text and they would think of the onus and responsibility of future progeny, it would actually be on the father because it was, at least culturally, his responsibility to find a mate for his son. Marriage in that culture works way different than it does in our own. I'm not saying it should work differently, but it does. Uh, There's two contrasts I want to point out, and this is just some... uh, interesting information that will help you understand the weight of this text. One way that ancient marriage in the East is different than modern marriage in the West is that of parental responsibility versus self-initiation. Parental responsibility versus self-initiation. This is actually the norm of most of the world. Uh, We just had uh, the, the awesome opportunity of having Joseph Darwin's parents with us for the last six weeks. And they're originally from India. And having dinner with them uh, a couple Friday nights ago, I was reminded that they were the first couple I've ever met that was truly the product of an arranged marriage. Now, I see like the young people in here actually thinking, like, I can't believe arranged marriage. But did you know that that's actually the way things have been done for the most of like society and world? (laughs) Like parents pick their children. I am not saying that it should be that way. I'm just saying that's the way it is. It's the way it has been. It's the way it was in this particular text. So keep in mind that first difference, parentally arranged versus self-initiated. But here's another one. These are fancy terms. The difference between the ancient East and the modern West, endogamy versus exogamy. Endogamy versus exogamy. How many of you used that word in last week? Either one? Okay, I didn't think so. Just think of it. Uh, monogamous, we think of monogamous, right? All right, now that means one marriage. Well, this is inward marriage versus outward marriage. Did you know that it was actually a value in the ancient East to marry within one's family? And I know that sounds morally repulsive to you, as it should be. But listen. In that culture, they wanted to protect values. And so they wanted to marry within similar family circles. I think a modern illustration of the way that this works would be imagining someone from an Amish community. A strict Amish community. Would you expect a girl from a strict Amish community to marry some mainline liberal Protestant? Absolutely not. Unthought of. No parent in an Amish community would ever allow their parent to marry outside their own circle. And so also, there's a touch of that protection that's going on. And so Abraham is keenly interested, and so is the reader at this point, of being keenly interested in Isaac finding a bride, and listen to this, not just any bride out there in Canaan somewhere, but particularly a bride that, that shares their values, someone from Abraham's own homeland. And what do we have in this text? We have a genealogy that discloses, out of the blue it seems, that Abraham's brother has had children. Eight of them have come from the legitimate heir, so the proper wife. Four of them have come from his concubine, his second wife, and therefore are illegitimate. But listen to this. Of the eight, that were born, the youngest son actually has a daughter, and here's the big deal for Abraham. Her name's Rebecca. She's legit. This is a prospect for Isaac. And so now, for the first time, Abraham has his pool home. 
He's thinking, I, I need to find someone for Isaac. And here in our homeland, back in Haran, there is an option. So that's why I say that there's the temptation from the old home. It's, but it's not only this, this, but before the marriage can even be arranged, before they can pack up and go talk to this Rebecca girl and see if she's going to work for them, there's been a tragic death in the family. Look at 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. That is Hebron. And so we reach the sad reality of the text that one of the original recipients of the promise died. This one who had heard these promises of God with Abraham that there would be a land never actually saw the land. She was always living in rental property. And so she dies in this foreign land. And in this particular culture, again, you don't just bury them where you find them. You typically bury them in their home place. So now Abraham has his second pull back to the home country. His second pull away from the promised land. With the unfortunate passing of his wife, 127 years old, he'd be naturally thinking, what is the best way for me to honor her? How could I show her who has been through so much the honor and the love that she deserves? And friends, she has been through so much, right? 62 years of the shame of infertility in that particular culture. Two different times being trafficked into some king's harem by her husband's cowardice. Two different times being driven to the point of despair by the other woman and her stepson. And then most recently, having gone through the emotion of seeing her only son marched off as a sacrifice somewhere, this woman, though not perfect, has exemplified faithfulness to Abraham in a way untold. She receives more face time in the Old Testament than any other woman up to this point, even more than Eve. And she has been loyal, and she has been faithful, and she deserves to be buried in a place in which she would be honored. And so the question for Abraham now at this point will be this. Do I bury her here in what seems like rented land, or do I go back to the home place? Is it going to be back in Haran? What would you choose? Benjamin Franklin said that a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, right? Abraham here is going to stake a claim, and the question will be, all right, what's he going to fall back to? Is he going to make a claim that home for him, the home place, like the place that they're going to come back to, is that going to be Haran, or is that going to be Canaan? And Abraham, despite all the odds, actually goes for the two in the bush. You know, I was, a few years ago, read this little gas station wisdom of a sign, you know, like how they put little quotes out. Maybe it was on a church somewhere. It said this, home is the place you come back to. Home is the place you come back to. You know, it's a funny question to ask yourself where home is. Well, use the aphorism. It's the place you come back to. Where is that place that you regularly are willing to travel to go back to? Uh, for those of you who are in like my stage of life right now, the, the one where you use 
all of your vacation time to go back to this particular place as opposed to somewhere cool or fun. I hope my parents aren't listening. The place that you go back to for Thanksgiving and Christmas, the place that you go back to when you get the wedding invite, you're actually expected to be there. The one where somebody dies, you show up. Home. Abraham here now has the chance to set the place where his progeny will come back to. And it's either going to be in Haran where it's just safe and comfortable or he's going to stake a claim that home for him will be in the land that God has promised him. And so we move from the temptation of the old home to the determination for the new home. the, The text naturally transitions right into this. Chapter 23, verse 2 through 16. And this becomes so clear. Or 3 through 16. Abraham, he mourns for Sarah, he weeps for her, and notice verse 3, and Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, the people of the land at that time, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, I want to pause here for a second because we're about to get into something that could be immensely boring or exciting depending on your disposition and background. I would think that the text that is coming up is going to be immensely exciting for those of you who are lawyers or real estate agents. For the rest of us, you're thinking, why is there going to be so much space on this negotiation? What we're going to have is three rounds of negotiation. We, we, we get two sentences on Sarah's death, and then we get a massive chunk of the Scriptures devoted to this negotiation for a burial spot. And so you're going to be tempted to think, well, why in the world would I be interested in this? But let me just give you this little heads up as you're making your way into this text. You want to be looking out for the provision of God, and the faith of Abraham through these negotiations. Remember, he's determining where home will be. And he seems dead level set on her being buried in this dirt in particular. And you should ask yourself, how is this an expression of Abraham's faith or of God's provision? Hang with me through these three rounds of negotiation. The opening round we've already read of. Abraham starts off by actually approaching in verse 3 these Hittites. Not to be confused with the Hittites in Asia Minor, for those of you who are archaeologically inclined, this is a different people group called the Hittites, the sons of Heth. And they're there in the Promised Land, particularly in this place of Hebron, right between Moriah, where we were last week, and Beersheba, where we were the week before. So he's he's in the heart of the Promised Land, and he goes and he approaches this foreign group of rulers asking them for land. And he is both humble and bold. Humble and bold. Notice as he approaches them, he actually says that, look, I am a sojourner and a stranger among you. Uh, Basically, I'm an immigrant. I recognize that I don't have any land rights whatsoever. He's saying this in deference and respect. But he's also bold. Because notice the next words out of his mouth. Give me a piece of property. So I don't know like, how this transfers into modern negotiating technique, but I'm sure there's some principle of transfer there. I will say this, though. His boldness is a recognition of his faith in God's promise. 
He fully believes that he can march into this group of foreign rulers and say, give me land. And listen to this. He doesn't just say, give me land, like for a lemonade stand. He says, give me permanent property, like for a burial site. Your lemonade stand can pick up and move the next day, but once you start burying bodies somewhere, you've kind of said, all right, I'm going to have this for a really long time. (laughs) The word itself, actually, possession, seen there in your Bible, is used in two other places in the book of Genesis to talk about the permanent possession that God has granted. He's not looking to rent, friends. He's looking to buy. And so he makes his offer. He says, I want a burial site. And notice how they respond. So offer, counteroffer. You ready for the counteroffer? They don't play hardball. They just go right into it and say, oh, you are a prince of God among us. Now, that's really different than what Abraham said. What did he say? I am an immigrant with you. But what do they say to him? You are a prince of God among us. They recognize him as one who is uniquely favored by God, and they want to show kindness to him. Look, people have been learning their lesson about this man Abraham. And so they're willing to concede, but I want you to know that they're not going to go all in on this thing. Look at your text again and and note carefully what they offer him. They do not offer him exactly what he wanted. Verse 5, the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead, notice this, in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Do you notice what's going on there? He's saying, they're saying to him, oh, no, 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 we'll let you have one of our tombs. It's ours still, but you can use the tomb. Again, they're thinking rental. Abraham's thinking buying. So that's round one. At least things get off to a hospitable start because you can tell when you get to round two here that Abraham is still keeping his cool, and he is going to continue, though, to angle for what he wants. Notice verse 7, Abraham rose And bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, acknowledging that it's their land. And he said to them, verse 8, If you were willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Notice that, how he ends. He says, I want this particular property. Thank you for offering I want Ephron's property, that one with the field, the one with the cave at the end, you know that one. That's the one that I want. And here's the deal. I want it for full price. And what kind of negotiation is this? I don't know, like next time you go to the car lot, that you're telling the guy, all right, guys, I'm going to drive a hard bargain with you. MSRP, that's what I'm going for. And yet Abraham's willing to pay full sticker price here. He's determined to pay full sticker price. Ephron actually overhears this, and this kicks off their response to round two. Abraham's offer, I want to pay full price for the cave at Machpelah. And then counteroffer, verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And he he closes with that bury your dead thinking, all right, case closed. Surely he's going to take it here. And do you see, as nice as the Hittites are, they're not inclined to let Abraham buy the land outright. 
And you're probably thinking, like, why is this? Are they just being really, really nice? Well, let me just pass along some wisdom that I've heard from people much older than me. Friends, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as a free lunch. A few years ago, a man that I worked for, I was managing a property for him, decided that he wanted to be uh, extremely kind uh, to my uh, children by paying for us to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, I'm in um, seminary at the time. I can't afford Chuck E. Cheese. And so, you know, four of the kids at this time go trounce off to Chuck E. Cheese. And, and instead of, like, giving us, like, a gift certificate for it and telling us to go, like, he goes uh, with us. He sits there at the table. He buys everything. And then this is the part that ticked me off. He bought all the, at this time they had tokens. He bought all the tokens for the kids. There's, like, a whole horde of them. And he kept them in the little bucket with him at the table, and he made the kids keep coming back to him to get the little tokens and tell them thank you every time. I just wanted to get up and walk out. I'm like, man, what a jerk. Like, just let the kids have fun. But he wanted the acknowledgement that he was being nice. I remember telling Ty, this is one of the most awkward dinners that I've ever been to in my entire life. I would have rather not gone. But you know what it's like. Somebody's nice to you. Because they want to own you in a little way. They want a little bit of influence with you. And so also, Abraham here, he's a good businessman. He knows how the way of the world works. And him borrowing something, especially something like a cave, well, you get one or two generations down the line and he doesn't have any property anymore. And so he is determined to buy. So we have offer, counteroffer, offer, counteroffer, round three. Round three begins... Verse 12, then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. He's still respectful. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. He's determined that he's going to buy it. And notice the counteroffer. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Basically, he says, if you, okay, fine. If you want to pay 400 shekels of silver, which is what the price of the land is, fine. Just go ahead and pay it. Bury your dead. I give in. And so Abraham gets his demand. It, it is a, a done deal. He, he gives him the land. He, he buys it from him. And you, you see, verse 16, like the, the official uh, record of victory, really. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver. And notice this last little phrase. According to the weights current among the merchants. According to the weights current among the merchants. The text is going out of its way to reinforce how official this transaction is. Have you noticed as we've been reading, it keeps saying, in the hearing of the people, in the hearing of the people, before the people. It even mentions that this whole thing happened at the gate of the city, which is like the city hall. For everyone reading this, like hundreds of years later, they would be able to look back and say, this was no fly-by-night transaction. This was real. This was official. This was on the books. He did it even according to the merchants of the day. Like, he paid a fair price. 
And you need to realize that Abraham actually owns a plot of land for the first time in where? Canaan. Canaan. This is a full, or excuse me, this is a partial but real fulfillment of the promise that God had given to Abraham. We'd seen a hint of it with this little purchasing of a well, but now we actually see some land, some dirt that he can call his own. Abraham wins the negotiations. And what does he end up with? Why does it matter? It is to that we now turn. Look at verse 17. The acquisition of this new home place. So, the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. What does that sound like to you? I haven't bought that many properties before, but it sounds like an official receipt. <laughs> it sounds like, like a transaction. We have the buyer, and he's listed. We have the person he's buying from, he's listed. We have the item for sale, the, the cave at Machpelah, and then we also have everything that it included. So it included the field, the cave, the trees that were in the field, and the trees that were around the field, and then the presence of witnesses. Who was it? The guys that were sitting at the gate. Here's our receipt of official transaction. Now, what's the reason for this, though? Why do we get all this time on this official transaction and not the time on Sarah's death? Well, the point is that Abraham expresses affection to his beloved bride in the way that he chose. He finally is able to put her in the place that would bring her the most honor. And what would bring the most honor to Abraham? Would it be to sell out on the promises that he's been pursuing for 62 years? Absolutely not. It would be to honor her by actually acquiring land in the place that God himself had promised. They now had a place they could call home. They now had a place that they would come back to. And guess what, friends? People would come back here. When Isaac would die, do you know where he would be buried? Here. Abraham buried here. Joseph, all the way down in Egypt, guess where his bones were taken? Here. God's people, the patriarchs in particular, would always recognize this as the place that they would come back to. This was an acknowledgement that God had in some way provided a tangible expression of his geographical, not just genealogical, promises. These are the first fruits enjoyed by faith of the promises of God. What we see is that the hope of the Israelites wasn't just some disjointed spirituality, some metaphysical type of thing. It was something that was real. It was something that it was tangible. It was something that you could hold in your hand and feel. God's promises were real to them. And so the question for us, back to us, is this. How does one living the life of faith then look for a home? How does the one living a life of faith look for a home? Abraham is our example in this, and the New Testament updates it. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 8 through 16. If you're visiting, you'll find that on page 1007 in the blue Bible in front of you at the very bottom of the page. We read this just a few moments ago in our Scripture reading, and it's always nice when it accords so beautifully with the text preached. Notice how the writers of the New Testament, through the lens of the New Covenant, would have us look back to this particular text. 
I'm beginning at verse 8, and this is where it connects with you. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has the foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she is considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Uh, Genealogical promises. Ready for the geographical? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has promised for them a city. So what does it look like to to choose a home by faith as opposed to sight. It looks like Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. It looks just like Genesis chapters 22 and 23. It is by faith. It is not by sight. So, Justin, help me out a little more. I appreciate the practical exhortation to faith, but what does that look like? Well, let me give you three signs and we'll close. Three signs of a home chosen by faith. The first is humility. Humility. I would encourage you, by the way, to write these down and to examine yourself this week or to have someone else talk to you about them. Are you marked by humility? What I mean by that is, are you okay with living out of the suitcase? Notice the acknowledgement both here and in our text. Abraham says, I am a sojourner and a stranger among you. I am a pilgrim and an exile. When you hear sojourner, stranger, pilgrim, exile, what are you thinking of? Are you thinking of Airbnb or are you thinking of your own house? Because there's a huge difference between the two. For those of you who are older and you've never used Airbnb, it's like a hotel except you're using someone's house. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about it. Because if you have, if you could put yourself in that situation for a moment of what it's like to use an Airbnb, it looks like a home. I mean, it has people's pictures up. I mean, they have stuff in their closets. I mean, like, it is a, like a real house. But guess what? You do not treat that place like home. You don't go putting your own pictures up. You don't remodel anything. You actually buy into the fact that, you know, I'm going to live here, and I'm going to be comfortable in the time allowed me, but this is not mine. I, this is not where I will permanently reside. You do that kind of stuff at your own place. So here's my question for you. When it comes to this world, that you live in, when you walk out those doors, do you view that more like an Airbnb or more like a home? I would say that the one who's living by faith is recognizing a certain humility because they're like, you know what? It's not mine. This, this isn't it. This isn't my final place. I will not make myself at home here. And you know what? I realize that I just won't have some things. I realize I'm going to miss out on some stuff. 
question, and I will intentionally reference Joel Osteen here. Is your best life now or later? Now or later? If it's later, if you're looking for your best life and the one to come and the one that Christ himself has promised you by faith, there will be a certain dissatisfaction that you should expect of this life, friends. A certain dissatisfaction. Uh, guess what? Your body, you, like your body will not perform the way you want it to. It will break down. It will frustrate you. It will send you to the doctor more times than you ever care to go. And guess what? Some of you get so angry at that because you act like this is your house. But this is just a temporary rental. Your body will not perform the way that you want it to. A sign of a sojourner and a stranger is someone who says, I'll take care of this thing the best that I can, but I realize it's not the one I'll forever have. It's not just with our body, but you could also see it in other ways, our relationships. Some of you are looking for home in certain relationships. You expect that your husband or your spouse or your future spouse or some boyfriend or girlfriend is actually going to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart as if that's home. If I could only have that, I would feel at home. Friends, look, relationships here, even good Christian marriages, they're broken. They're messed up. They aren't perfect. And the relationship that you should be looking for, ultimately to find fulfillment and rest and peace and security, isn't that human one, but it is the one that you will enjoy with Jesus Christ forever. I'm not trying to tell you don't work in your marriage. I hope that every one of you would come to our marriage seminar being taught by Fred and Rob. It's fantastic. But listen, that's not home for you. It is till death do you part. And I just messed around with this the other day. I was telling you about doing my grandmother's funeral. I will never, excuse me, my grandmother's wedding. (laughs) (laughs) The reason I got it mixed up is because I would have never expected that. I just just assumed that my grandmother and grandfather were going to be married for the rest of their life. Over 50 years, same relationship, right? Who would have ever thought that I would be doing a wedding? And yet that's the reality. And some of you recognize this right now. The older saints in this room, you know this to be true. Can can I just encourage you, please talk openly about that with people who are younger. We need to hear it. And those of you who are younger, I would encourage you to pursue that conversation and just ask, what is it like? Ask Christian people who know what it's like to find hope in Jesus beyond a spouse. That is a sign of humility. That is someone who is living as a pilgrim, as an exile, as a sojourner, as a stranger. Their earthly relationships aren't their highest source of satisfaction. Not just that, but experiences. If you think that your next vacation is going to be the end-all, be-all, it is going to provide that satisfaction if you are hoarding money so that you can travel the world and see all the sights and smell all the smells. Listen, friends, that will disappoint you. You're a sojourner. You're a stranger. Take a vacation, I encourage you. But don't find your hope and satisfaction in it. Jesus himself has promised a better world to come. Illustrations of this could continue. Sojourners and strangers don't find satisfaction in their home. And I say this to the ladies in the congregation especially. 
because Pinterest fuels your desire to make your house better and better and better, and guess what? It will never be what you want it to be. Possessions, men, (laughs) your stuff, your toys. There's no satisfaction there. You're a sojourner. You're a stranger. These things are on loan. Do not find hope in this. So the question is, are you looking for your best life now or later? And may I make one more comment about this? If you do live as a sojourner, as a stranger in this life, you will be perceived as odd by your worldly friends around you. You're just going to come across as plain weird because they're thinking YOLO. You only live once. And they've got to make this thing count. And so they talk about their bucket list and all the stuff that they need to do to have their best life now. And then when you're actually telling them things like, well, you know what, I may not be able to, to make it to that trip to Greece that I wanted to do in this life. And they're like, what? What do you mean by this life? <laughs> Say, I hope that it will happen in the world to come. That's weird, friends. I'm just going to tell you, that sounds weird. But guess what? That's what it means to be a sojourner and a stranger. You are not at home here. I am not at home here. We are looking for a different world. So one of the signs then that we are choosing a home by faith is that of humility. We're, li- we're willing to live out of the suitcase. And my final note on this would be for anyone in this room who is struggling with possessions. Maybe you say, Justin, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can really find hope in something that, that, I don't, that I can't see, that I can't taste, that I can't touch, that I can't feel, that I can't hear. Like, that just makes sense to me. I'm being compassionate. But hear me, if that is the perpetual struggle for you, my question would be this. Have, do you have a new heart that is given to you by God? Say, a new heart? No, no, hear me out. I know a lot of times people in church will say stuff like, have you asked Jesus to be your personal Savior or have you committed yourself to Christ? I'm going to drop that language for a moment because I think it's confusing. I'm asking you this. Have you been born again? Do you have spiritual affections within you that God himself has given to you, like spiritual affections for things eternal and not temporal? That's the question for you today. Because you will not be able to live as a sojourner and a stranger if you don't have the heart and the capacity to do so. Your spiritual eyes to see are dead apart from His enabling Spirit. And the only way that you'll ever receive this spiritual life that you need to hope in the world to come would be through turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you. When someone places their faith in Christ, something spiritual happens on the inside of them, and then they have the capacity to to yearn for and to long for and to find satisfaction in the world to come and not just the world that they see right in front of them. And so I would say, if this is the perpetual struggle for you, you need to ask yourself, have I been born again? And if you don't know what that means, or you want to know more about that, talk to me or another one of these church members before the service ends, because it is one of the most important questions that you'll ever ask. So there's a sign of humility. There's a second sign, and that is the sign of happiness. It's not just humility, but there's also happiness. See, we enjoy small pieces of the promise that have already been given to us in Christ. Friends, it isn't all doom and gloom. It isn't all I'm renting. (laughs) There's actually some benefits to this place in which you temporarily reside that have been uniquely provided you in Christ. And I'm not just talking about beautiful sunsets and outrageous meals. (laughs) 
I'm talking about what's been provided for you in Christ. See, what we see here in this text, in Genesis 22 and 23, is that Sarah herself is now buried in promised dirt. She finally receives, or Abraham finally receives some aspect of fulfillment of this promise. It's finally become real in some way. It isn't all just blind negotiation one day, but there's actually some benefits of the promise to God to Abraham in this life. We already saw it on the genealogical end, right? The birth of Isaac is like the first fruits, listen to this, the first fruits of a whole progeny to come. If he never would have saw this, If he never would have saw Isaac born, he could not be fully assured that there would be a nation. But guess what? Isaac wasn't the fulfillment of that because it's only one kid. Abraham never saw a nation. He died with those promises. And the same thing with the land promises. Did you know Abraham would never receive a title deed to the entire promised land? And yet it was promised to him. Guess what, friends? God's promises exceed our own expiration dates. God's promises exceed our own expiration dates. And so, the truth is, we need to find joy and fulfillment in what He's given us now. He gives us small expressions of real grace in the moment as precursors, as down payments of greater things to come. And the greatest expression of God's present fulfillment for us in this day is in Christ Jesus Himself. The reason why we constantly are harping on the resurrection of Jesus is because it is a historical fact that someone has permanently loosed the bonds of death for any who would believe in Him. Now that's a big deal. Because no one's ever been able to beat it. Someone finally has. We have real, concrete, historical, in-the-earth kind of hope that someone can overcome this. And it has been historically verified by the apostles and the prophets and the witnesses of the New Testament and handed down to us. But listen to this. It isn't just historical. It's also experiential. Because Romans chapter 6 tells us that because of Christ's resurrection, we enjoy something right now. And that is victory over the old sinful self and the ability and capacity to represent Christ in ways that we never could before. Every one of us in this room were spiritually dead. We were a nuisance to family and friends. We were a menace to our own spiritual health. And yet, once we placed faith in Christ, it gave us that new life. And now we are already enjoying the benefits of Christ's resurrection in this life, even though it's no heaven on earth, and even though we're not everything we want to be. You may not be everything you want to be, but you're certainly different than what you used to be if you've placed your faith in Christ. And you know what? You should look to that and you should be thankful. God hasn't given me everything. It's not heaven yet, but it certainly is a measure of happiness in this life that I can find joy in. That God has already begun to answer His promises in my own life by making me different, by changing my home. Ask somebody like Bill White what it was like before Christ and then after Christ in his home. It is a measure of heaven breaking in. As someone who was enslaved to alcohol now has victory from it and begins to lead his wife and his family in a godly and righteous way. That is present fulfillment. That is God working in the meantime. And it is small, but it is sure. these present expressions of fulfillment kind of remind me of uh, the times when I was a kid, and maybe you've experienced this before, back when people used to actually go to shopping malls. You would be around the food court at lunchtime, and you would smell Chick-fil-A. 
And there'd typically be this older lady standing out there somewhere with a tray of the little chicken nuggets with the toothpicks in them. Were those not the best? As soon as you taste that sodium-drenched piece of chicken, you just, you want the rest of the sandwich or the nugget. It's, it's a sure fulfillment of something greater to come. <laughs> Friends, what you enjoy in this life, it is small, it is sweet, it is significant, it is real, but it is not the entire thing. It's just a taste. It's just a taste of what God ultimately is providing for you in Christ. I joked around last week about songs that we used to sing in church. One of them that still comes to mind, even I was thinking about it this week, was the song Showers of Blessings. And we used to sing, showers of blessings, showers of blessings we need. Mercy drops round us are falling, but all for the showers we plead. And the point of the song was like, God, we just want you to pour out your blessing on us. But friends, listen to this. Don't despise the mercy drops. Don't despise the small ways in which God is presently fulfilling His promise to you. This is part of what it means to to live or choose a home by faith. You are humble and that you are a stranger in exile, but you are also happy insofar as you're recognizing that God has fulfilled His promises in small ways, and you'll find joy in that. But not only are you humble and not only are you happy, but someone who is choosing a home by faith It's also hopeful. Hopeful. You have true faith in a real world to come. You know, here in Hebrews 11, it makes it clear what Abraham really wanted. He wasn't just expecting the full fulfillment of the land promises. You know, his children would actually inherit the land. It was very important to to their faith and our own. They would inherit the land. They they would actually possess it, but they would never possess it to the full degree that God had promised it to them. And so what we ultimately learn is that they were still looking for something greater. Even when Israel owned the land, they never really owned the full fulfillment of God's promise to them. And that's why it says Abraham was looking for a heavenly city, one whose foundations was built by God himself. He was looking for something greater. He recognized that even though he could see a plot of land and even though he had a son, God still had something better in mind for him. And so we also live a life of faith, not just happy with the current expressions of God's grace, but hopeful for better and clearer expressions of God's grace in our own life. This is like the Colossians 3 mindset that Paul talks about, where he says, seek the things that are above. This is living as if Ephesians 2 was really real, that that we've been raised up and seated with Christ. It is the Hebrews 11 context that we all, a, a characteristic of one who finds faith in a heavenly home, desires that better country, desires the heavenly one. And so when you do reach those moments of just painful living as a pilgrim, you find Hope in God's promise to come. There's an amazing scene at the end of C.S. Lewis' series on the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe where you have Peter and Edmund and Lucy and they're making their way through all these journeys and it climaxes in this book entitled The Last Battle. 
And this is where it all comes to an end. And there's this particular spot toward the end of the book where Lucy and some of the others finally cross over into Aslan's land. If you're following the analogy, it's heaven. And as they're crossing over, they're actually lamenting Narnia because they loved Narnia. It was so beautiful to them. There was so much to enjoy there. And yet, as they make their way farther into the country, they begin to look around and things look strangely familiar. They begin to see that the, the, the place that they left looks a lot like the place where they're at. And one of them pipes up and says, once they realize, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is because it sometimes looked a little like this. Friends, all those things you like about this world, this created world, they're just a little taste of what the world to come is ultimately like. Don't lament the loss of this life. Celebrate what you will gain in a new one. There is no loss. It is only gain. There is a real place provided for you that we find hope in as believers. And we are looking for that better country to come. It is what we have longed for all our life and we never knew it. So hold on, beloved. A better land is yet to come. Let's pray. Well, the promise of our heavenly home is nothing new. It is nothing new. Or we've heard it, we've heard it, we've heard it, and yet we just so struggle to internalize it, to find true hope and joy in it. And so we can only count now on your word and your spirit to make these things real in our hearts. As we deal with the pain and the frustration of being a pilgrim, an exile, a sojourner, a stranger, enable us this week and in the weeks to come or to find real hope and, and the promises that you've given us for the life to come. Not to be escapist, but to be true, biblical, realist, to know that our best is not now. The best is yet to come. So help us personally. Help us interpersonally to encourage one another in this way. I pray that our commitment to the land to come, Lord, would come out, Lord, in our, in our service to one another, in our, our generosity toward your church, in our, our willingness to, to serve and to invest our time, Lord, in, in ministry endeavor, or work this out in real ways in our own church, or to give us all a heart for our future home and for those who do not have the eyes to see or the heart to feel. Convict them of their sin. Give them a new heart today so that they may enjoy this same hope. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and ask it. Amen.